Again, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met, and I haven't said hello to our online community for a while. There's actually more of you every week than I <laughs> tend to think there will be, and I definitely want to say hello. I know we have our Oak Crest community on a Sunday like this where it's snowing. I know, I don't know if it's this service or next service, but I know there's a room of you at Oak Crest who are joining us, so we're happy that you're with us. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of scripture this morning, so uh, get ready to read or flip through your Bibles more than normal, um, because I didn't, we're, we have two weeks left, I didn't know how to break up what we're going to do today. But as we were, as I was working this week on this text, which is a text I've read a bunch of times, but I really have not slowed down, I'll explain why in a little bit, but I was just thinking about the way the beauty of the biblical narrative works, that it's this... And I've tried to even maybe even help you see some of this as we were in Genesis before Christmas and Deuteronomy now, but, but you get all these clues early on in the story, right? The people, Adam and Eve are in the presence of God, in the, in the, in the treasure place, <laughs> dwelling in Eden, and through their own folly and rebellion and selfishness, they get exiled. And so, so much of the biblical narrative is, can we get back to Eden? Can we get back to dwelling in the presence of God and, and all these things that God is going to do to be with his people? But there's all, there's all these questions that surface in the Old Testament. I told you there's a lot of different voices coming in the Old Testament, and it doesn't all make crystal clear sense as you're journeying through it until you get to Jesus, <laughs> And so we're trying to do a both and of wrestle with the questions and the tensions and the riddles and the mysteries. How is this going to work out? How? How is such a rebellious people ever going to find its way back into Eden in the presence of God? And that's this drama that unfolds. And I was trying to think of stories or movies or books and I don't know, there's probably better ones, and I even hate using movies these days because it just reminds me how dated I am, and some of you have not seen these. Maybe, 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 this, maybe this service has, but next service we get a little younger, and then I'm like, no one knows what I'm talking about. I'm just like, whatever. But have you seen the movie National Treasure? It's a little bit older. N- Nicolas Cage, th- there's this... It's, it's, it's a fun, like, exciting clue to like, clue, to clue, to clue, and he's got to steal the Declaration of Independence because it's a map, and there's all these clues in it and around it, and, and they follow, and it's just like, it's this, like, exciting, it, it just intense action, and, it, and you, get, you get all enthralled. How is this little mystery, how are all these riddles going to unfold? And I love it because you get to the end of the movie and it's actually a little ridiculous. They're like, I think they're in Philadelphia and they're like underground <laughs> and, the, and the treasure room is ridiculously large. Like this fire gets lit and it just keeps going and going and you're like, come on, there is not that much treasure buried under Philadelphia, right? Like, come on, like, but it's just this excessively large, but it's a, it's a satisfying ending to the movie and the journey. But I was thinking about that even for the text that we're going to look at today because we're going to come across a couple more of these riddles. We're going to be reminded of earlier clues that, again, at the time of Moses and Israel, that it gets them interested, it gets them excited, but they don't always know exactly where this is going to go. We know because Christ has come, which actually even led me, if you were to ask me, what are we going to try to do today? Uh, we're not in Colossians, but I want to read Let me read this from Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This is kind of what I hope to do today, really, for you. 
Paul's writing to the church and he says this, I want them, I want the church to be encouraged and not surprisingly and knit together by strong ties of love. We talk a lot about the importance of love here. He says, I want them, I want the church, I want you to have complete confidence that you understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. It's been a mystery. Maybe you haven't understood, but I want you to understand now, in him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as we're in Deuteronomy, I want you to feel that some of the treasure's hidden. Where is this unimaginable treasure room buried that just keeps going and going and going? Well, it's in Christ. And there's all these hints and riddles as we journey on our way there. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy 31. Our main text, I told you tons of Bible this morning. Our main text is Deuteronomy 32, 43 verses. But I got to set it up in Deuteronomy 31. This is our second to last week. We're going we're gonna to do this this week. This is the one I was kind of going back and forth. Or do I want to do this or not? But I got plenty of time, so we're fine. But next week, we're going to do the death of Moses. We'll do Moses, uh, the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34. There's more going on with Joshua. We can't talk all about it, but, but Moses is handing things off to Joshua before his death. Joshua is going to kind of do what Moses was doing. Chapter 31, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, the time has come for you to die, which everyone wants to hear that, right? Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, so that I may commission him there. So Moses and Joshua went, they present themselves at the tabernacle, and the Lord appears to them in a pillar of cloud, really cool, that stood at the entrance to the sacred tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you are about to die and join your ancestors. Here's the ultimate pep talk. After you're gone, those people will begin to worship foreign gods, the gods of the land where they are going. So you've been leading these people, trying to get them to follow me, and as soon as you're gone, they're going to follow foreign gods. There you go, Moses. All right. They will abandon me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And we're going to talk a little bit about the anger of God today. Uh, the Old Testament will give us a handful of different metaphors of ways of understanding the anger of God. Sometimes it'll talk about the burning fire of God. If you were with us kind of two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we were talking about the curses, sometimes the Bible will talk about God's anger as handing us over, right? I said part of the punishment for the Israelites was they actually, they get what they wanted. They wanted to worship other gods and part of their punishment is worshiping other gods. So Sometimes God's anger is expressed in handing them over. But here in verse 17, we get a different metaphor. My anger will blaze forth while you get the fire. But then he says, I will abandon them, hiding my face from them. So sometimes even in the Old Testament, where even, even in the, the blessing I use from Numbers sometimes, from Aaron's blessing, uh, may God's face shine upon you. May God turn his face towards you. Well, here as we talk about the anger of God, God is turning his face away. He's hiding his face from them and they will then be devoured. He's removed his life, his protection, and they're devoured. Terrible trouble will come down on them and on that day they will say, these disasters have come down on us. Why? Because God is no longer among us. And at that time, I will hide my face from them on account of all the evil they commit by worshiping other gods, breaking this covenant that we've been journeying through. And this then sets us up for what we're going to walk through. So write down the words of the song and teach it to the people of Israel. Help them learn it so it may serve as a witness for me against them. 
It's a very important song in the history of Israel. For I will bring them into the land. I swore, I'm going to be true to my promises. I'm going to bring them into the land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. This is their opportunity to, in a sense, re-enter Eden, the promised land, right? But they're going to become prosperous, eat all the food they want, and then become fat. That's what it says. But it's this imagery which I know you can relate to because I'm a pastor. I hear it all the time. When life gets good, it gets harder for me to pay attention to God. I think it's some of what's happening here. So for some reason, when life is hard, when we're anxious, when we're, when we're nervous, when we're, when we're experiencing suffering, now we're like locked in on God. But when life gets good, it gets way too easy to get comfortable. And that's what's happening to Israel. They will begin to worship other gods. They will despise me and they will break my covenant. And when great disasters come down on them, this song will stand as evidence against them. For it will never be forgotten by their descendants. Which, honestly, this is going to, more so than I realize, this song is going to continue to trickle and maybe flow through the Old Testament. I think if I, if I read collect correctly, pretty much every single prophet is going to quote this song at some point. I mean, it's just not going to go away. Israel, they're going to come back. Remember, God said this would be a witness. Well, this is why you're experiencing what you're experiencing right now. This is why you're in the predicament that you're in right now. And it's going to stand as a witness. As they go into the land and they disperse and they no longer have Moses, the song goes with them and they are to remember the song. And then it ends with kind of an echo. There's a ton of echoes of Genesis. And this, we're going to have all these flashbacks to the past in this song, and then, but also directing our eyes to the future. I know the intentions of these people. You remember in Genesis, God says he knows their scheming hearts, that their thoughts are only evil all the time. <laughs> it's almost echoing that language. I know the intentions of these people, even now, before they've entered the land, I swore to give them. I know what they're going to do. So that sets us up for Deuteronomy 32, what is often known as the Song of Moses, even though it's really God telling Moses what to say. It's not really Moses' song. Uh, I, I, was, I, spent, I, I learned so much this week because I, I was thinking about this. A lot of times when I'm reading through the Old Testament on my own and I'm in these narrative books, when I get to a poem, I don't know if you're like this. When I'm in the Psalms or whatever, I try to slow down. But when I'm trying to read through these, and Deuteronomy is like a repetition, so that's why I think that's one reason we don't spend as much time in it because we've already read it in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in some ways. Moses is giving these sermons recasting what's just happened. But I, I often in my own study get to poems like this and I just like whip through them to get to what's happening next, you know? So this week I slowed down to really like lean into this and it's worth taking some time. Well, I mean, it's a song, 43 verses, but I want us to kind of work our way through this and get a feeling for what is happening because this really is really important. And, and as I'll try to draw out for you too, I was just thinking about this. Years ago, I studied Romans, and one of the authors I was reading while I was studying the book of Romans just kept going back to how important Deuteronomy was for Paul's arguments in the book of Romans. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, but I didn't really understand. And as I was, this whole series, but really this week, leaning into this song, and you'll see if, I mean, if you've read Romans much, this is one of those places where you read the old, you read the new, you, read, you keep learning more. You're going to realize how much of what Paul is saying in Romans comes from this song. It's pretty crazy. So let's get into it. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the first section here is verses 1 to 4. 
And it starts pretty much how you would expect a song to start. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words that I say. Right? It's bearing witness. Let, let my teaching fall. I love this. This is good image. You got to get into the imagery. Let, let my teaching fall on you like rain. Let my speech settle like dew. Let my words fall like rain on tender grass. You're even like, you're, oh, okay, rain on tender grass. Let gentle, like gentle showers on young plants. Okay, you're ready to receive this. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious, how glorious is our God? That's what we've been singing. How glorious is our God? He is the rock, which is important because... As we get through this, you'll see God's kind of going to say, I'm the rock versus all the little pebbles you run after. <laughs> I'm the rock. He's the rock. His, his deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair, which will be important for you to keep in mind as we talk about the anger of God. He is faithful. He's a faithful God, and he does no wrong. How just and upright he is. And we could all say, hallelujah, amen, yes, it's so true. So the song begins by celebrating who God is and his loyalty and his faithfulness and his justice. But we're going to turn a corner now. We're going to go from the loyalty of God to the disloyalty of his people. Verse 5. But they have acted corruptly toward him when they act so perversely. And now we're going to get... One of the first questions that isn't going to be fully resolved in this song, but it's going to hang out there all the way to the book of Romans. I'm telling you, Paul's going to wrestle with this in Romans. Are they really his children? Is Israel really his children? I mean, would children be this disloyal? (laughs) They are a deceitful and twisted generation. And is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he, I mean, again, just think about how, fo- how much folly. Isn't he your father who created you? Why do you reject him? Has he not made you and established you? You wouldn't be if it wasn't for him. Remember the days of long ago? Think about the generations past. Ask your father if you want. He'll tell you. He'll inform you. Inquire of your elders. They'll tell you. When the Most High assigned the lands to the nations. And now we're journeying back to Genesis 1 through 11. Really chapters 10 and 11. I could do a lot more with these verses. But the Most High assigned lands to the nations. All the nations when he divided up the human race. I mean, this is the God of all people. He established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. He's chosen Israel out of all the nations. But we're going to, as we go through this, we're going to be reminded. He's chosen Israel, but not just for Israel's sake, for the sake of the world. Israel is to be a light so that all the nations come to know the one true God. But what has he done for Israel? I mean, again, this is part of their folly for not following him. He's the one who, no one else did. It's not the pebbles, it's the rock who found them in a desert land and an empty and howling wasteland. This is going back to the very beginning of creation when God is bringing order out of the chaos. He, he surrounded them. He watched over them. He, he hovered over them like, like the Spirit did as it hovered over the waters. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes. He's, he's their shepherd. Like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young, so he spread his wings to take them up and carry them safely on his pinions. 
The Lord alone guided them. It wasn't anyone else. They followed no foreign gods. He let them ride over the highlands and feast on the crops of the fields. So now we're going to get into this royal feast, this provision of Eden kind of feast. He nourished them with, with honey from the rock. You know it was water from the rock, but in the poem now it's, it's, it's honey from the rock, right? Olive oil from the stony ground. He, he fed them yogurt from the herd and milk from the flock together with the fat of lambs. He, he gave them choice rams from Bashan and goats together with the choicest wheat. You drank the finest wine made from the juice of grapes. I mean, just look at what this God has done for you. Why would you run to anyone else that's bearing witness? And then verse 15, very important. It says, but Israel soon became fat and unruly. I want to pause there for a second. Uh, there's an asterisk in my Bible, a little Israel, because it literally says Jeshurun, which we could spend a whole time talking about it. But Jeshurun is it's a way of Actually, there's debate about whether it's being used sarcastically or endearingly. But Jeshurun means the upright one. So, so some people think it's talking about Israel, Israel, the upright one. God, it's an endearing term from God to Israel. Others are like, well, in the context, is so sarcastic. They're anything but upright. And he's calling them the upright one. I just want you to remember Jeshurun, the upright one, because we're going to come back to that at the end. We're going to read a little bit from Romans. I want you to keep that in your mind. You're going to see... How much of this is just echoing through Paul's head? The people grew heavy, plump, and stuffed, and then they abandoned the God who had made them. I mean, what a phrase. They abandoned the God who had made them. They made light of the rock of their salvation. They stirred up his jealousy by worshiping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons. They're not even gods to gods they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived that they have invented, to gods their ancestors had never feared. You, you neglected the rock who had fathered you. You forgot the rock who had given you birth. So we're getting into this. And again, I want to return to this question. Who are, who are the children of God? These verses are planting the initial seed for a question that will continue to be raised throughout the poem, who are the children of God? So far in the Torah, the answer seems to be the nation of Israel, but here we see that even within Israel, there are those who act so corruptly that God does not seem to identify them as his children. So it's just raising this question, these clues. We, we need to figure out these riddles. What is going on? All right, on to verse 19. We're moving on through this song. The Lord saw this, and what did he say? He said he would hide his face. He, he drew back, provoked to anger by his own sons and daughters. He said, I will abandon them, and then, and then we'll see what happens of them. What becomes of them? For they are a twisted generation, children without integrity. Again, handing us over to what we think we want. Go ahead, see where that takes you. They have roused my jealousy by worshiping things that are not God. They have provoked my anger with their useless idols. And now I will, again, if you're familiar with Romans, if not, go ahead and read Romans 9 to 11. See if this doesn't echo. We don't have time to talk about this today. But now I will rouse their jealousy through people who are not even a people. <laughs> I will provoke their anger through the foolish Gentiles. It's again, 
Paul's using this argument in Romans. For my anger blazes forth like fire and burns to the depths of the grave. It devours the earth and all its crops and ignites the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters upon them and shoot them down with my arrows. I will weaken them with famine. These are the arrows, famine and fever and disease. I will send the fangs of wild beasts. And notice this because this is going to become important as we continue through the song. Poisonous snakes that glide in the dust. It's not an accident that we're going to talk about snakes if you have followed the story from just Genesis on, right? From the very beginning, there's a pretty important snake that creates a whole lot of problems for humanity. Verse 25, outside the sword will bring death and inside terror will strike both young men and young women, both infants and the aged. No one's getting away. I would have annihilated them, wiping out even the memory of them, but I feared the taunt of Israel's enemy who might understand and say, our own power has triumphed. The Lord has nothing to do with this. God's like, no, I, I'm, I'm sovereign over all. But Israel is a senseless nation. The people are foolish without understanding. Oh, that they were wise. Right? God has always wanted to give us his wisdom, but all the way back to Adam and Eve, we've said, no, we will, we will, we will, get, it, we will get wisdom on our terms. We will seize it on our terms and we will decide what is good and what is bad, what is beneficial and what is harmful. God says, oh, that they may know their fate. Oh, that they would wake up. Oh, that they would trust. How could one person chase a thousand of them and two people put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up, hidden his face? But the rock of our enemies, the pebble, is not like our rock as even they recognize. And then this is interesting language. Again, we're, we're back in Genesis with this. And I think he's talking about the people of God here. What kind of people, right? Are they my children? What kind of people are they? Well, if they're a plant, their vine grows from the vine of Sodom, <laughs> from the vineyards of Gomorrah. Their, their grapes are poison and their clusters are bitter. That's not a good picture. And then let's go one step further. I told you it's going to be a theme through the end. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. I think it's a poetic way of saying, what has happened to Israel? They've become like the snake. They've become like the snake. I mean, they've, they've trashed everything about the life that God wanted to give them in Eden. And they've run after absolute folly. And the Lord says, am I not storing up these things, sealing them away in my treasury? And again, this is something Paul will quote in Romans 12. We've, again, we've, this is a road we can't go down today. But I will take revenge. I will pay them back. In due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will arrive and their destiny will overtake them. But you get a picture, you get a feeling, and you're wrestling with this question. Who are the people of God? Who are the children of God? And maybe now you're even starting to go a step farther, and who are the real enemies of God? Again, these questions that are just hanging out there. Now let's pause. This is a good place to pause. Let's talk about God's anger, because we don't always know what to do with God's anger. And it just so happens that my, I told you I get one devotional every day. 
And uh, the guy writing our, my devotional this week spent the whole week talking about the anger of God, and he said some really good things. So there's a few thoughts about God's anger as it relates even to, I think, what we're reading here in Deuteronomy. First, consider a human parent. Obviously, no one wants a mother or father who is perpetually angry, who is angry all the time. But I do think, and parents, you know this, any parent who is never angry, who does not react with swift action towards threats against their children, or the children's own self-destructive foolishness cannot be called loving. You would not call a parent loving if, if they didn't react to threats against their kids or, or their kids. I mean, yeah, go ahead and just put your hand on the hot oven. Just do it. Do it, honey. No big deal. I mean, a lack of, a lack of love. Instead, they would be guilty of criminal neglect. Likewise, a God who is never angry cannot be loving or just. Any God who does nothing in response to evil is himself evil. But this is exactly the God we are often presented with by our culture, modern-day Babylon. And one of the problems with our culture is the lack of, I would say, a, you could say an overarching narrative or a meta-narrative. There's no one narrative that binds all of us together. That's part of our confusion. And one of the consequences of not having an agreed-upon story that we're all living out of is that there's no agreed-upon right or wrong. You know this. I don't have to tell you this. But good and evil have become cultural constructs. Which, allow, which, which allows everyone to be right and no one condemned as wrong. Instead, we're all merely misunderstood. And on the surface, this seems like an appealing solution to cultural conflict that leaves behind the ideological and religious wars of the past for a more tolerant and enlightened future. It also explains why those who adhere to this live and let live perspective find the Christian teaching about divine judgment primitive and repellent. And maybe why so many young Christians have been shaped by the forces of globalization and multiculturalism and they're eager to abandon the traditional doctrines of judgment and wrath. But the God presented by the Bible is different than that. In the Bible, we find a God who is slow to anger. And that's important. He's slow to anger, but he's not without anger. And he is patient, but he is also committed to justice. And we learn that the Lord's anger is caused by his love for justice, not contradicted by it. In fact, erasing God's judgment of evil creates a major problem. It means affirming that there's nothing fundamentally wrong in the world that deserves either human or divine intervention and correction. It means human suffering is only the result of misunderstanding our differences and never any true moral depravity. It means accepting a universe without any ultimate justice. And this week, one of the devotionals ended with these questions. Do we truly want to live in a universe without judgment? Do we want a world in which evil is merely a point of view to be understood rather than a contaminant to be purged? And we'll talk more about that purging, that cleansing next week. Is it compassionate or merciful to make the perpetrators of genocide and racism and human trafficking morally equivalent to their victims? Is a God who does not judge and sees nothing worthy of his wrath truly worthy of our worship? Far from being morally superior, abandoning a belief in divine judgment is not moral at all. 
And as Christians, if we care about justice, we ought to celebrate the righteous anger of God and not hide it. Because a God who is never angry is also a God who is never good. Something to think about. And maybe that will help you as we get to verse 36, and maybe you'll hear this. I mean, I know what I read through sounded heavy. It's kind of meant to, I think, in the song. But we get to verse 36, and there's going to be a little bit of a turn. It's not a huge turn. (laughs) But indeed, the Lord will give justice to his people. And we should say, yes, bring an end to all this evil. Yes, God, remember I said at the beginning, you are good and you are upright and you are true and you are fair. And I trust in your justice. Would you bring justice? It says he will change his mind about his servants. Instead of this, this, this disposition of anger, he's going to, something's going to happen. He's going to, when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. What an interesting verse. We've been told that God is going to hide his face from him. But guess what? He's, never, he's still watching them. And somehow when he sees their strength is gone, their, their resources have been extended to their max. They've got nothing left. It, it even sounds like there's no one left, doesn't it? Again, this is even going to launch into the, this is, this is going to launch into the prophets when they talk about a remnant. I mean, this is where it's coming from here. There's no one left. Well, there's got to be someone left because God sees them. It sounds like no one. It's just the poetry of the song. But God's going to see them. I, even, I was even just thinking about how prevalent this is in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is really concerned about who's humble and who's proud. There's just this echo all the way through Scripture until you and I get to our place of humility where we recognize that we've extended all we can on our own and now we need God. God says, all right, do your thing. Fine, you want to, I'll hide my face until you're ready. But when you're humble, you'll finally, you'll finally be pure in heart to see. You'll see what I'm doing. And then maybe you'll remember how amazing I really, I'm not a pebble, I'm a rock. Who saved you? Who has brought you into existence? I've only done good. So come home. That's the invitation. And he will ask, where are their gods? Again, he's just making an argument about their folly. Where are their gods? The pebbles they fled to for refuge. They fled the pebbles. Where now are those gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their offerings? Let those gods arise and help you. Let them provide you with shelter. Go ahead, try to hide under a pebble. See how that does, right? Look now, I myself and he. And again, Isaiah uses this language. There is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. No one can be rescued from my powerful hand. And now I raise my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live, when I sharpen, God's going to war, when I sharpen my flashing sword and begin to carry out justice, I will take revenge on my enemies. Poetically, then, who are his enemies? Repay those who reject me. Again, now we're back to this question. Well, then who are the enemies of God? I thought the Gentiles were the enemies and Israel was the chosen people, but the way this sounds is... Israel's rejected God too. And so who are the enemies? You got to just sit with this question. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh. And then listen to this last line. The blood of the slaughtered and the captives and the heads of the enemy leaders. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Yahweh will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants 
concerning his servants. That's what he said in verse 36. He will change his mind about his servants. So who are his people? Who are the enemies? Who are the servants? Who is his servants? If the people of Israel as a whole are not Yahweh's people because they've forsaken him, then who are? And who are these servants that he's going to vindicate? Who are the remnants? Who are his enemies? And I told you then in verse 42, it ends with this idea of blood being splattered even from the heads of the enemy leaders. Well, let's go back. I told you we're, again, in in the story of Israel, we're not quite to Jesus. And so if we're going to try to live in this framework, we're We want to wrestle with these clues and these riddles, and we want to go back to our first great clue of salvation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's the curse given to the snake. Notice, I've been trying to draw this out for you. Now we're back to snakes. We've had snake imagery all the way through this. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. What does it say? He will strike your head and you will crush his heel. So the offspring of the woman is going to strike the head of the snake. And So part of what I think is coming out of Deuteronomy 32 is if you become snake-like, you're going to get caught up in the crushing of the head snake, the snake's head. And, of course, we also know from Genesis 3.15 that if you are a part of this remnant, this servant people ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, right? He's the one who ultimately crushes the head of the serpent, but, but he still gets his heel bit. I mean, that's why there's this language of blood all the way around. Deuteronomy 32 is sobering. Y- y- Yahweh's people who choose to act like snakes will meet the fate of the Genesis 3 serpent, crushed by Yahweh, depicted here as a divine warrior. However, Yahweh will have compassion for those who choose to remain faithful to him, those who remain humble. Those people will become a remnant that will then Bless the nations. That's what the prophets are going to work out. Why do I say that? Well, let's read verse 43. Fascinating verse. Listen, this is verse 43. Paul literally quotes this in in Romans 15. Rejoice with him, you heavens, and let all of God's angels worship him. And then this. Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And let all the angels be strengthened in him. For he will avenge the blood of his children, or your Bible might say the blood of his servants. He will take revenge against his enemies. He will repay those who hate him, and he will cleanse his people's lands, literally atone for the land, which we'll talk more about atonement next week as we wrap up Deuteronomy. But what I want you to see here is we've just read this pretty heavy psalm, song, song of Moses. And, and it sounds like we're wrestling with who are the children and who are the enemies. When we get to the end and the, the God's going to be a warrior, but look, the people of God and even the Gentiles are going to rejoice because God is going to do something. We don't know why. We just have clues and riddles. But God is going to do something to deliver the decisive blow to the head of the serpent so that you and I can re-enter Eden. <laughs> That's what this is drawing out. And Israel was never to forget this song. 
It's a beautiful song of God bringing justice. Now, what is this going to look like? We don't know at this point. Now, we do know because Christ has come. But, but in Deuteronomy's day, they don't know. So you're wrestling with all these questions. Is it, is it the Gentiles who are the enemies? Or is it, is, it, is it the disloyal people in Israel who are the enemies? But even when we get to verse 36, and it seems like there's no, is, anybody, is there anybody who's a friend of God? So let's jump to one of the, I mean, we could look at so many places in Romans. I want to go to Romans 5. And he's not directly quoting Deuteronomy here, but I, if, you, if you were paying attention, you cannot help but hear Deuteronomy 32 echoing all the way through this. It begins, what did I talk about? Right, when we're weak, God sees us. When it seems like there's no one left, we've expended all of our resources. What, is, what does Paul say in Romans 5, 6? When you were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Now listen to this. Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Most people would not be willing to die for Jeshurun. Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a, a person who is especially good, but we know from Deuteronomy 32, that's not Israel. <laughs> But God showed his great love for us by doing what? By sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, and again, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Listen to this. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemy, Right? So it's kind of fun to get, who's the enemies? Because it's got to be other people out there. No, no, no. We were the enemies. You and me. The enemies of God. But what God, what's God's response to us? I said, well, it's to send Christ. To restore this relationship. To bring us back to Eden. And we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And now, I don't know if you hear verse 43 in this or not. Now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. It's good news. It's the gospel. Now, I want to go, if you can hang with me, i got a couple minutes. I want to go one more step because this was pointed out to me recently and I think this is really cool too. So let's go to Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, Hosea is writing a prophecy and we're getting a lot of the doom that we read through in Deuteronomy 32. Hosea is making the point that you have not, you've abandoned the covenant and you've abandoned God and the, the curses are coming. And it's a pretty heavy, I mean, Hosea goes back and forth in his prophecies, it's an interesting story in his own right, but, but, but this, I want to read a, just a few verses for you because I want you to, to again go a step further and seeing we've read about all of this but, but how am I supposed to view God? Is, is God for me or against me? How do I understand this? So again, before Christ, you, you, would, you would get a prophecy like this. Hosea 13, verse 9. You are to be destroyed, O Israel. Yikes. You are to be destroyed, O Israel. Yes, by me, your only helper. Now that should feel heavy. It certainly did to them. Now where is your king? Where is your pebble? Let him save you. Where are all the pebbles of the land, the kings and the, all the pebbles you demanded? In my anger, I gave you these kings. I gave you over. In my fury, I took them away. I'm trying to teach you a lesson. 
Ephraim's guilt has been collected. It's kind of, it's one of the tribes, but it's a way of talking about the northern kingdom sometimes. Ephraim's guilt has been collected and his sin has been stored up for punishment. Pain has come to the people like the pain of childbirth, but, but they are like a child who, who resists being born. The moment of birth has arrived, but they stay in the womb. It's pretty heavy. And then we get to these rhetorical questions that, I mean, you know where they lead. Should I ransom them from the grave? No. No. Should I redeem them from death? No. Oh, death, you bring your terrors. You, grave, you bring your plagues, for I will not pay, take pity on them. And some of you have done a little bit of work that you know that there's a Hebrew Bible we often call the Mesoretic text. And there's a Greek version of the Bible, right? The Bible's been translated a lot. We call the Septuagint. And the Septuagint reads this way. I just want you to hear the way the Septuagint reads because, because Paul can quote from both, but you'll see he often quotes from the Septuagint. In the Greek version of Hosea 13, it says this, O death, where is your punishment? Bring your punishment, where is it? And O grave, O Hades, O Sheol, where is your sting? Get your stinger out. These are questions of doom. Shall I redeem? No, let them have it. It's coming. Israel's unmistakable fate is made clear. They've gone down the road of self-destruction and, God, and God's not going to stop it. In fact, like Pharaoh's hard heart, he's going to continue to enforce it. But remember, this is before Jesus. This is before Easter Sunday. So after Easter Sunday, you have Paul coming along and reflecting on this stuff. And you come to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. Look what happens when the light of Christ shines on all of this. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. So who's the enemy now? Now the enemy is death. Now the enemy is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Because it's gone. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it's no more. You've been blunted. For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you see this? In Hosea, God is so angry, it seems like there's no hope. Now, again, they don't have the clearest picture and they're working with these riddles and these clues. But death, do you have your plagues? Yep, I got them. We'll bring them. But I hope you see that once Christ has come, in 1 Corinthians, doom is turned into victory through Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, I will destroy you, O Israel, becomes I will destroy you, O death, and I will help you, my people. So if you hear all of this, yes, God is angry against the injustice and evil in this world. But don't get confused. In Christ, you and I have been brought into his family, and he is for you, and he is committed to you, and he's conquering all of our real enemies, death, sin, the devil, the powers and principalities. Paul says our battle is not with flesh and blood. Don't get confused about who your enemy is, and don't get confused about what Christ is doing in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I think this is good news, and I know we covered a lot of ground. And again, I don't think it all has to make perfect sense to us right now. I mean, you're patient. 
And we can wrestle with some of these questions. But there is, there is an invitation here for each of us to rethink something. I bet to rethink some things. Who, who, what is our real enemy? Who is our real enemy? I mean, we were your enemies. And look what you did for us. And if that's what you're willing to do for us, to restore us in relationship with you, then then maybe we should learn from you and live like you and follow you into this and be that light that Israel was always meant to be so we can corporately say together, rejoice all you nations because Jesus has come to save every single human being on the planet. What a glorious invitation into life and into love. So actually, I just said this at the beginning. Maybe, maybe there is somebody in our life that could benefit from an invitation to get to know you. Maybe there's somebody in our lives right now that we could invite Easter Sunday, Good Friday. Invite to small group. Invite to a conversation. We've been rescued from our rebellion. Are there people in our lives that we can reach out to to share the good news They're living with doom. They have a false view of God they don't understand. And we can tell, oh, God's made it really clear who he is. And you'll never believe it because there's nobody like Jesus. God, would you be at work in our lives to lead us to love others, to be a light to the Gentiles so that we can rejoice together because this is good news. You have rescued us from sin and death and ushered us into new life. And we say thank you, Jesus. Amen.